The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Good evening, Tom. How are you? Good, Father. Thanks for being here tonight. Well, you're very welcome. Father, we have a few uh, current events that I would like to start out. Um, we had a, a few emails regarding these current events, and the, the first one we had several emails about this, uh, different, several requests for you to comment on the legacy of Billy Graham and his recent passing. If you could comment, comment on his legacy, Father. Well, you, you surprised me with that, but uh, that's fine. <laughs> I noticed that uh, he's getting accolades, uh, peons of praise, from, mm-hmm. peons of praise from all over the country. Some calling him America's pastor. Others saying that he was like God on earth, and others saying that uh, the last great preacher of the gospel has passed away, and who can now, you know, took up the, the reins and preach the gospel now is Billy Graham. Well, they talk about Billy Graham as though almost, as always more than a, even an apostle, as always like a Christ-like figure. <clears throat> but it reminds me of the account, which I believe is true, because it seems to be based on reliable sources, that it was uh, Randolph Hearst. Uh, it was the, the, the man, the great newspaper man of Hearst Newspapers, who actually gave the command after hearing Billy Graham preach as a young preacher, Puff Graham. And uh, in newspaper parlance at the time, that meant build him up and make him like basically a household name. Puff, get the wind in the sails and make, create him. Okay. So, uh, uh, William Randolph Hearst supposedly is the one who propelled uh, Billy Graham as a young preacher to become the, uh, the great evangelist, as it were, for the world. But unfortunately, you know, Billy Graham taught the Protestant version of the Scriptures. <clears throat> and the Protestant version of the Scriptures is, is false. It's simply that. I'm not judging the man. I'm not, I don't pretend to judge the state of his soul. I have no intentions of, of sitting in judgment of his con- conscience. Right? But the fact is that he was the a missionary of the Protestant falsification of the sacred scriptures. You know, the Protestantism <clears throat> was based upon these three fundamental principles, grace alone, faith alone, and scripture alone, with the uh, added, uh, you might say, uh, principle derived from that, that scriptures are to be interpreted by oneself, private interpretation of the scriptures, because, again, Protestantism a la Luther said there really is no authority on earth to tell us exactly what the scriptures mean, <clears throat> to interpret them for us with any authority. And so, um, this is what Billy Graham represented, and as insofar as it's what he represented, he represented a very serious distortion. Um, 
grace alone could be considered in a Catholic sense. I mean, the Catholic Church makes it very clear it has long before Billy Graham or Martin Luther or any of them were born. The Catholic Church has been teaching for, from the very beginning that God's grace is absolutely necessary for salvation. We know that. Uh, the Church condemned the opposite error when she condemned the Pelagian heresy of the British the British monk Pelagius back in the 5th century, who said that God's grace is not necessary for our sanctification, and therefore God's grace is not necessary for our salvation. That is a heresy that the Church condemned, absolutely. <clears throat> a thousand years before Luther was born, and uh, 1,500 years before Billy Graham was born. So, um, But the Protestant interpretation of that principle, grace alone, essentially rules out the need for human cooperation. And that is purely grace, and that man, <clears throat> that the human, human being is almost saved in spite of himself, uh, that he has no part to play, but he does. He has a part to play, and that is cooperation with the grace of God. Okay, uh, Faith alone, the same. We, we did a whole video on this time. Uh, actually, more than one, probably, about the idea that faith alone saves, in the Protestant sense, just believe and accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and your, your actions do not matter. Your sins are already forgiven in, then in, in advance, and um, you don't have to live in fidelity to the gospel, was what Luther was actually saying. There are a lot of Protestants who don't even believe that anymore. But that is a fundamental principle of Luther, and fundamental principle of Protestantism, that we are saved by faith, and Luther added the word to Scripture, alone. <clears throat> uh, that is a complete falsification of our Lord's message. Our Lord said very clearly, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I command of you? Be ye perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our Lord taught the Beatitudes of how we are to how we to conduct ourselves. It's not just a matter of having faith; it's a matter of being faithful. Uh, but Martin Luther actually taught that being faithful was not important. That the human human nature, what it is, that we couldn't be faithful. <clears throat> so all we had to do was believe that Jesus died for our sins, accept that accept him as our personal savior, as they like to say, and that's all that we're required to do to be saved, and that's not true. That is a falsification of the gospel. Billy Graham taught that. <clears throat> he taught that principle of Martin Luther, and of course, Scripture alone. I, I won't go into detail on that. Again, we've done an entire video on that. I recommend that people get that, play that, and play it for their Protestant friends and ask them to think about what is said there. The whole idea of Scripture alone, the, the bedrock principle of, of, uh, of all real Protestantism, right, is absolutely not true. Even the, even the Scriptures themselves tell us that it's not true. Um, and, you know, just to, even to ask the very simple question, how, how could one get away with claiming that Scripture alone is all we have from God, it's all that God has revealed to us? Scripture alone... <coughs> When, first of all, uh, you, there, there are books are very hard to come by. There's no printing press until 14, the middle 1400s to produce books. And if you could produce the books, that 95% of the people couldn't have read them anyway. And so how did they get away foisting this principle? Well, I guess they could get away with it because Luther was born about the same time the printing press was invented. 
and he was able to to make a claim to that effect that scripture the written word of god is the contains everything uh, that god revealed and all that that god's revelation is only in sacred scripture but in any case uh, as i mentioned before tom in that video we made on that protestant principle of scripture alone but the scriptures themselves tell us that not everything that our Lord taught is in the scriptures. I mentioned just one example of that, where the first chapter, the first verse of the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles tells us that our Lord Jesus Christ remained on earth for 40 days after his resurrection, teaching the apostles. And uh, that our Lord's teaching during that time, obviously, is important. But if you go to the end of the Gospels, uh, you look for that teaching recorded, to be recorded there, and the Gospels of St. Matthew, St. Mark, and St. Luke go immediately from the resurrection to the ascension without teach giving us any of those teachings. And the Gospel according to St. John gives us basically only two of those teachings of the 40 days. Uh, one of them uh, of our Lord telling his apostles to go and forgive sins. It's again, Protestants don't like, they don't want that teaching. That human beings ever on earth were given the power by God to forgive sins in his name. And the other teaching uh, in St. John's Gospel during those 40 days is that of our Lord telling Peter and Peter alone, you feed my lambs, you feed my sheep. And thus giving Peter the role of a shepherd uniquely to Peter. Again, Protestants don't want that. So where you do find the only examples in the gospel of our Lord's teaching during those 40 days, these are the teachings Protestants don't accept. <clears throat> so in answer to the question, you know, how would I assess the, the, the work of Billy Graham in preaching? I, I would have to say he's, he's preaching a very distorted gospel uh, teaching things that our Lord did not teach and teaching things contrary to what Christ taught. Uh, insofar as he, he's teaching um, according to the fundamental principles of Protestantism. Um, so I, I would have to say that he has, that he, he is not America's pastor, uh, regardless of what they're teaching. He's not a true apostle. Uh, there are those who have a devotion to him uh, secondarily, secondary only to their devotion to Christ himself. And sometimes I even wonder if Christ himself doesn't come second in some cases. <clears throat> but for those who put Christ our Lord first, they would have to recognize that if they really looked at all the evidence, they'd have to say that he, he was not preaching the true gospel. Okay. Uh, there's another email here regarding Protestantism, which we've had for a while now, so I'd like for you to address this in regards to the thousand years referenced in the chapter 20 of the book of Apocalypse. And since this viewer writes in and says, Father, I have debated with Protestants their heresy according to the Church of Millenarianism. They believe that the second coming of Jesus Christ will usher in a period of 1,000 years of feasting and happiness with the Lord on earth. St. Augustine said that he too in his day for a time believed this until he considered in the same chapter 20 the first resurrection and then the second resurre resurrection 
and he concluded that the thousand years is a spiritual reign that began with the birth of Jesus and continues with the spiritual reign of the saints in heaven, lasting a thousand years, a time that the devil's power in the world is diminished but not entirely taken away. The thousand years will end at the second coming of the Lord and the church endorsed St. Augustine's view before he died. And in the 1940s, to refute the thousand-year Reich of Adolf Hitler. Can you provide us with more clarification on these unfortunate fables, as St. Augustine called them? Some say this issue is one of the most debatable in the book of the Apocalypse. Some say that, but it's not debatable. These are unfortunate fables, even as St. Augustine said back in the, about the year 400. St. Augustine dealt with these things in a very capable, a very prudent, and a very Catholic way. And as our writer so sagely observes, the Church uh, did not define dogmatically uh, St. Augustine's interpretation, but said that St. Augustine's interpretation is reliable and is worthy of belief and, and is credible. Um, the fact is that millenarianism, if you want to call it, it has the idea that Christ himself will come to earth and reign here and have a great party with for all his believers. Um, and that is absolutely not what Scripture says. Um, certainly not what the church herself teaches. Right? Uh, quite the contrary. But I mean, speaking of unfortunate fables, Tom, I mean, we have those who, who are preaching the rapture these days also. And that's another unfortunate fable. Uh, what it does is, is it brings to mind the words of St. Peter when he says that no interpretation of Scripture can be done legitimately by private interpretation. It's not to an individual to interpret the Scriptures for himself. St. Peter even uses the, the example of St. Paul's writings and says that St. Paul's writings are filled with, well, carry messages that are very obscure and hard to understand. And he said that there are individuals who interpret these in such a way that they lead to their own destruction. He says, foolish people will twist these teachings of St. Saint, Saint Paul. Why are they foolish? St. <clears throat> Peter indicates they're foolish is because they presume to interpret these things for themselves as though they had some special divine guidance from above. Well, again, St. Peter is writing those words <clears throat> when he's writing his, his epistles, he wrote two of them, and he's writing these before the year 67 AD when he died as a martyr. But he was actually condemning the idea of Martin Luther that I just talked about, private interpretation of the scriptures. People were already misinterpreting the scriptures back then, taking it upon themselves foolishly to say, I will interpret this. <clears throat> I have the direct inspiration of the Holy Ghost to tell me what, what the true interpretation of this is. That's why St. Peter says that person is being, he uses the expression being a fool, very, um, playing the part of a fool. <clears throat> to think that he, that he has that uh, prophetic power from the Holy Ghost when he has nothing of the kind to interpret scripture for himself and for everybody else in the world infallibly. There's only one authority that has been given that power by Christ, and that is the authority that he's given to his apostles, and through the apostles to his church, his true church. Um, so, in other words, Tom, uh, I, I, this writer's uh, expressing a very important thought for us today, not to fall into the pit of private interpretation, because then we play the part of the fool. Um, 
but also misinterpreting the scriptures to our own damnation. Um, no, uh, the, the idea of the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth with his, uh, with his followers um, enjoying a, a gigantic festival is not in the gospel. It's not anywhere in scriptures, nor is it anywhere in the teaching of the church. Um, it is interesting what he points out here, though, that there were some, some Christians, so to speak, interpreting this to trying to apply it to Hitler's Reich. The thousand-year reign of the Third Reich is what they were expecting. As though this were some kind of fulfillment of sacred scripture. And it shows the danger of trying to interpret this for oneself. It shows the danger of a madman like Hitler trying to capitalize on this. And it shows the danger of Satan himself getting in there and disguising himself as an angel of light, as though he's going to make it some kind of pious belief <clears throat> that the rise of the Third Reich under Adolf Hitler was some sort of a biblical, the fulfillment of a biblical prophecy, and leading to this, uh, this, this thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. So the dangers are there. We've been duly warned by our Lord, by the Church, in our last time. And this writer brings up uh, a very important point. Mm -hmm. Okay, then moving on. Father, there's another recent event that we received uh, a request for you to comment upon, and that was the, uh, the school shooting in, in Florida oh, right. that happened. And, and one of our viewers wrote in, uh, if I could just, just generalize some of the questions here, essentially just asking for a Catholic perspective on the idea of private citizenship uh, private citizens, the, their ownership of guns, mm -hmm. and uh, a Catholic perspective on the Second Amendment. And uh, this writer is, is offering a, a perspective here saying that the Second Amendment is not a justification for private citizens owning assault rifles and that they should be banned for public use. Um, he offers a few other things here saying that uh, hunting rifles should be limited to five rounds in a, in a clip. Uh, schools should have at least one qualified licensed teacher for every 10 classrooms and different different points like that. Father, so could you just comment in general? In other words, this writer is urging these thoughts or just mentioning this is what's going around right now? Um, not 100% sure. <coughs> oh, okay. They, 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 they offer points there. I'm not sure if they're... Uh, well, let, let's take it point by point. If you, if you sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, se the Second Amendment. What's the Catholic perspective on the Second Amendment? Something wrong with it, certainly. I mean, the Catholic perspective on just says human society. God made us for society, right? Mm -hmm. And we have a right to self-defense. I mean, the Church has taught that there is such a thing as just war under a very narrowly defined set of circumstances, right? Um, and it basically has to be a last resort that, that there is uh, no other way and that there is an evil so great that the only way to remedy it is by fighting a just war against it. Uh, that's an oversimplification, but nonetheless, the principle is there that we have a right to, to self-defense, right? Sometimes not only a right, but an obligation to defend those who depend on us. So I might be willing to allow myself to be killed as a martyr or for whatever reason, I might be willing to do that. I can't say, here, kill my wife and my children, too. You know, I have an obligation to defend them, clearly. So there's nothing wrong with 
firearms. They're, the liberals want to demonize things because they don't put moral evil in the soul. No, no. They don't have a concept of sin and moral evil in the soul, so they have to demonize things. If there is an evil in the world, the evil is going to have to be in things because they don't recognize, you know, but um, they, they just don't recognize moral evil, except in people who do, you know. And people who talk about responsibility, guilt, sin, that's their evil, okay? Um, so they have to demonize guns. Guns themselves are evil, right? They, they look upon human beings basically as bundles of nerve fibers <clears throat> who are just reacting almost robot-like to everything. And any moral responsibility, <clears throat> liberals don't go for that. <clears throat> so the evil is in the gun. Take away the gun. So, um, even from the good, not only the evil, the bad, but from the good too. Uh, the church never doesn't look at it that way. The church looks upon evil as being in the soul. Moral evil is in the human soul. Original sin and our actual sins, that is where evil is in the world. Okay, And uh, people have killed with guns, whether they're AK-47s, AR-15s, uh, M1 Garands, or uh, Saturday Night Specials. Uh, they have killed with... Uh, crossbows, they've killed with uh, clubs, they've killed with all kinds of things. They have, people have been murdered by all these things in the course of years, and the evil in the murder is in the murderer's heart who does the murder. Mm -hmm. The evil is not in the club, the evil is not in the knife, the evil is not in the arrow. It is in the heart of the murderer who directs these things to take the life of another innocent person. Um, so the Second Amendment basically recognizes that fact. Um, that people have a right to be able to defend themselves and to defend themselves not only against foreign invasion, they have a right to defend themselves even against tyrannical government. And that is why tyrants have always, always started out by trying to disarm the people so the people were helpless to resist their tyranny. But, Father, should there be a limitation to this right? Because he, he mentions here that, you know, this idea of, of private individuals owning automatic assault rifles or uh, they, they should be limited to, to five round clips. So is, is there some kind of limitation that, that should be placed on this right? Well, again, Tom, again, you have to see where they're coming from. So I have a fine five-round clip. So that, that necessarily uh, would limit me to uh, killing five, only five people, right, at a time, okay? So I can, I can have two or three five-round clips, right? So I can run out one clip, eject it, insert the other magazine at a clip, and kill another five people. It doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't actually address the, the problem of the moral evil being the source of the problem. It's not a matter of how many rounds they have in their clip. It's all a matter of how efficiently they can kill is what they're addressing there. And if you have an AR-15, very deadly weapon. If an AK-47, a very deadly weapon, it's true. But a, a 45 ACP, you know, is a deadly weapon, right? And uh, limiting the number of uh, rounds you can have in the clip it doesn't take away the deadliness of the weapon in the sense uh, that you can you still kill people with it. If you have an, if you have a, an evil mind and an evil heart, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, 
I mean, that, that kind of argumentation, again, not that the individual is necessarily arguing that, I know, but that kind of an argu argument, argumentation, again, evades the real issue. That's the problem with this kind of stuff here. These kind of ideas evade the real issue. And the real issue is what kind of people are we forming in our society right now? Mm. What kind of minds, what kind of hearts, what kind of souls are we producing as a people? <clears throat> um, then we have to disarm them because they're too dangerous. Mm. And uh, we have to strip the right of good people who can use these to defend themselves. Uh, you know, the argument goes, and there is a good point to it, that the evil will always find ways to do their evil. And, uh, you know, if government will come in and take away, even by force, the means of self-defense of the good, they are leaving the, the bad people reigning supreme. I mean, look, what, what, happened, what happened in Florida at Parkland, okay? There was not one. There were four armed deputies outside. They did not intervene. They had firearms. They did not intervene. <clears throat> Why was that person not picked up by the FBI before? There was a failure, a complete breakdown of systems failure there <coughs> of our law enforcement in this country of this young man who was obviously a, in serious trouble, right? And there were so many warning flags, uh, so many warning shots across the bow, so to speak, uh, warnings that went directly to the FBI and went to local law enforcement too. Uh, and when he began shooting, finally, after all of these warnings that went on for months ahead of time, um, and, and the law enforcement did not intervene. Minutes passed. How many rounds fired? If their argument is, well, if he couldn't have fired so many rounds while the law enforcement people were outside wondering what to do without intervening, if we could have limited the number of bullets he could have fired in the meantime, that would have saved so many lives. No. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is a false argument. Uh, we need to look at the actual causes of this. And the cause of the death was not the AR-15. It was an instrument. Uh, the cause of the death, um, you know, w w was not the fire alarm that the boy pulled, you know. Um, that did not cause these students to die. Uh, he used these as instruments to trap them and to kill them. He was the cause. And there are also other causes, another, another means that one can contribute to, to the evil done by another is by one's negligence in his duty. Mm -hmm. And we have plenty of those who contributed to this, too. <clears throat> and, um, you know, there are so many people with responsibility for what took place there we need to focus on that responsibility. The gun is not responsible. The bullets are not responsible. The fire alarm is not responsible. Are we going to start banning fire alarms in schools now because they can be pulled uh, by would-be assailants to get the students out in the hallway? They're going to be shot. Um, if it saves one life. 
<laughs> right, right. Well, uh, sure enough. But you know, it'll cost more lives than it saves, okay? And disarming uh, innocent uh, uh, citizens and taking away from them the power to defend themselves is going to cost more lives than, than it saves. I think if you actually studied the issue, you'd find that where they have the least so-called gun restrictions, where they have the least restrictions on private ownership of guns, you have the least crime. Mm -hmm. That gun-free zones are an invitation to murder. Um, that uh, the solution to bad people having guns is not to take the guns away from the good people, but to take the, gun, the guns away from the bad people, and that's what our laws are for. The trouble was our laws aren't being enforced. Mm -hmm. And the very people up there crying out, gun control, gun control, are the ones who are not enforcing our laws. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And they're the ones who also own guns, too. <laughs> you know, I think if you were to, to examine, especially the law enforcement, the, uh, the politicians who are crying loudest for gun control, that I bet you'd find every single one of them has at least one firearm is his or her possession. <clears throat> so I find a great deal of hypocrisy behind all of this. Mm -hmm. The solution is to uh, form a society that can form good people, moral people. Our government schools are corrupt, are so, so viciously corrupt. Not that all the teachers there are bad. There are many good people, good people teaching in these schools. But they're hampered by, <clears throat> by laws. Mm -hmm. And they're hampered by, hampered by school systems that will not, not allow them to be a good influence. They're teaching in a, in a school atmosphere where it is perfectly okay to curse and swear and blaspheme Christ, but you cannot pray to him publicly. You cannot praise him. You cannot express your love for him. You cannot ask for his guidance or his mercy. You can't do that. But you can curse and swear and blaspheme him mm -hmm. all you want. There's nothing wrong with that. What do they expect? And these people who are pushing for the gun control uh, loudest and longest are the ones who are doing the, the most cursing, it seems. Um, it's, uh, believe me, Tom, I, I mean... It, there's a there's a actually a philosophy behind this whole matter that goes very very deep into the liberal psyche, and um, it is fundamentally a rejection of the responsibility of the of the one who actually is pulling the trigger. And Father, I, I know that uh, we received at least one email asking about uh, this the, the conspiracy theories that are surrounding this event, and if. So uh, the, uh, the the legislators and, and political parties involved, if they if this wasn't orchestrated purpose purposefully to mm -hmm. to try and have a narrative to, to push this this gun control, and you know you mentioned all the the warning flags that were ignored or, or mishandled, and and if that was intentional in order to orchestrate something like this, and it seems that that's a very a very plausible plausible theory. And uh, well, the sheriff himself, Israel was on Team Obama, as he called it. Mm -hmm. He was a proud member of Team Obama. Mm -hmm. Talk about, uh, you know, the, the great guru of gun control <laughs> and, his, and his cronies.
You, you mentioned, Father, the, uh, the, the point about what, what type of uh, citizens that our, our society is churning out and how, what type of people we're forming. And I thought, actually, our, our president had a, had a great uh, comment in the wake of this where he said, perhaps it's time to start um, analyzing the, the, the video games and the movies that, right. that, are, that our young people are involved in. He said there's, you know, there, there, there's so much violence in here where death is just portrayed as... Talk, as common sense. Yeah. It's the one thing that is absolutely anathema right now. Common sense. <laughs> and he would be shouted down. It's a how simplistic, what a moronic thing to say. The man is not safe to be president, you know, because mm-hmm. he's, he's talking, he's making sense. Mm-hmm. And another aspect of the whole thing is the broken homes. So many of these shooters come from broken, dysfunctional homes. Yeah. Now, whether the homes are, are broken because of divorce or because of death... They come from broken homes. They haven't been raised in 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 an actual, integral family, nuclear family home life. But not only that, so many of them are on psychotropic drugs. So many of these these young people are on mind-altering drugs for serious mental problems. And this this fellow, too, uh, was definitely on... uh, had been on these drugs. I don't know if he was taking them at the time that he did this, but he had been taking them for some time and was under psychiatric care. And it's something that is not... It's being hushed up. They're they're spiking this fact. Why? I don't know. Big farm, (laughs) right? Pharmaceuticals. uh, If people start uh, start making a, a connection between these shootings... And some of their products, this could be a very right. bad business for them. Right? Well, Father, one, one final point from this email. You know, you, you mentioned the, the right that individuals have to self-defense, but is it is it possible for someone to forfeit that right? He, he asks here, uh, or he says, anyone who is expelled from school or fired from work or dishonorably discharged from the military or other similar situations, they should be placed on a no-gun list. Well, again, there are restrictions. Felons, right, cannot own guns. Now, I don't know how many of those on those of his particular list are banned from having guns. That's a matter of law, and yeah, definitely. There, my, my point was we have to keep the guns out of the hands of the bad guys, but because we cannot keep all the guns out of the hands of all of the bad guys, <clears throat> we need to allow the good guys to be armed. They have a right to self-defense, right? So basically, I'm saying that same thing in that regard, as this gentleman is saying, or lady, Mm -hmm. that there are some people who definitely should not be allowed to have guns, should not be allowed to have access to guns. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a matter of of law and and prudence, you know, and and, and justice. Um, Exactly who's on that law list and how it's enforced Again, that's a matter of law. But this idea, take away all guns from everyone you can, is a guarantee that only the criminals will have guns. The law-abiding people will follow the law um, insofar as it is humanly possible and prudent. And it's it's not the law-abiding people who are going to be... uh, <clears throat> the ones to, to fear at that point. But the law-abiding people are not the ones to fear right now. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what we should be doing is trying to disarm the criminals. <clears throat> and w- the, the, the first thing 
is not to disarm the criminals. The first thing is not to form criminals. Right? right. Not to let the criminals have guns is one thing, but not to be putting uh, the, the, uh, the, the young people uh, through this process which is so dysfunctional that completely distorts them mentally so that they are mentally deranged and uh, and and uh, maniacal people, right? Um, so anyway, that that is a matter of faith, and that is where liberalism and modernism are the enemy. Look, <clears throat> a criminal with a gun is a menace. A liberal politician with a vote is even more of a menace, and a modernist. Churchman, with a with a with a mouth, is even more of a menace to spread error and to attack faith, and that's what they do. They have been attacking faith for years and years now, going on centuries systematically through the Protestant Reformation, so-called the the French Revolution, to produce a society society uh, in which human beings are nothing but evolved apes. And uh, that's all they think of themselves. And uh, there is no God in heaven as their judge. There is no Father in heaven to love them. And uh, no Savior on earth to rescue them and to guide them in life. And so they are nothing but these poor, solitary, depressed existentialists who are creating their own reality around themselves and think nothing of just, you know, mowing down a dozen, two, three, four dozen people. Because this is, uh, this is their statement in life. Um, I'm sorry for going on, but, you know, I find those who are actually crying out for this, I find this is symptomatic of, the, of this mental and moral disease that they themselves uh, are, uh, have created. They're like modernists. When the church was suffering the ravages of modernism, the modernists would always say, we need more change. We need more change. <clears throat> and the more change that came in, the worse things got in the church, right? And so it is now with Francis. <clears throat> but so it is with the liberals. We need more liberalism. We need more liberalism. And every time they get their way, things just get worse and worse and worse. And it gets to the point where you think they know exactly what they're doing. This is exactly what they're intending. Mm -hmm. They want to create such an impossible, intolerable situation where we're crying out for tyranny. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Father, that, that seemed to be like the, the universal cry as soon as all, all of this happened was... This idea of we need to do something, we have to do something. The government has to rescue us. Something, something must mm -hmm. be done. You know, there's all these students mm -hmm. who are staging protests and, and walkouts from, mm -hmm. from schools all across the country saying, we have to do something, we have to do mm -hmm. something. Washington, the, the politicians <laughs> have to do something. They have to come and take away our rights so that we'll be safe. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, their, their rallying cry, too, is it's, it's all about the kids. We have to protect our kids. And how hypocritical is that when you, yeah. you think of the, the same liberal politicians that are saying this, the very ones that have, that have advocated for abortion. And, and you know, I'm going to talk about kids and protecting our kids. What is, what is this? What, 17? Yeah, we saw the same thing go on at the French Revolution. We saw the same thing go on in, in, in uh, Bolshevik Russia. And we never learn. No, no this, is one of the thing, this is one of the consequences of original sin. It's like we never, 
learn. <laughs> so by the grace of God, though, we can and we will. Yeah. All right. Well, Father, let's, let's jump to another email here. Different subject. <laughs> this viewer <laughs> says that uh, I'm thinking of traveling to Norwood for the Easter Tritium. I'm looking for pre-Bunini everything, including no genuflection for the Jews and no distribution of Holy Communion to the faithful on Good Friday. Also, a bifurcation of the Mandy and the Mass on Holy Thursday. Is Norwood the right place for me? Yes. Let's say, well, the liturgical practices of uh, non-Buninian <laughs> liturgical practices mm -hmm. are all observed here. Absolutely. Perfect. Awesome. All right. The next email, Father. It has come to my attention through some readers' comments in a Catholic blog that the SSPX no longer conditionally reordain priests who enter their fold from the Novus Ordo. I'm not certain if this is true, but if it is, it would be a great scandal for those faithful attending the Society's chapels who can't be sure if the priest celebrating Mass has received true holy orders. No wonder the Society has resistance groups from among its ranks when Bishop Fillet is willing to put down all spiritual weapons to appeal to modernist Rome for regularization. Ultimately, in my opinion, the SSPX may as well sign away their acceptance of the Council and the Novus Ordo Mass, as it seems that the worse Rome gets, the more Bishop Fillet is willing to bend, like the reeds in the wind. Your thoughts, Father? Um, I think it's well said. Yes, the Society of St. Pius X is having clergymen come from the Novus Ordo and uh, go to the altar, right? Perform Masses in their chapels for their people, a consecrate hosts, but these men have been ordained only in the Novus Ordo with the Novus Ordo Rite. And um, they're incorporating more and more of these clergymen into their regular service. And uh, this is one of the things that way back when in 1983, uh, I and other priests with me protested. We actually brought this to the attention of Archbishop Lefebvre and said, even then Archbishop Lefebvre was consecrate, was reordaining conditionally, according to the traditional rite, certain Novus Ordo priests, but not others. <clears throat> and uh, we, we asked Monsieur Lefebvre very respectfully how, how this could theologically work, because if there was a doubt about the <clears throat> validity of the Novus Ordo ordinations, then that would seemingly apply to all of them, not just some of them. And Monsignor Lefebvre's answer was that he, he did. There were, there were actually in one in Kansas City that well, we were there for some <clears throat> ordinations. Uh, there were two priests, two clergymen from the Novus Ordo. Both of them had been ordained according to the Novus Ordo ord, right of ordination. And one morning, Archbishop Lefebvre intended to conditionally consecrate, or I'm sorry, conditionally ordain both of them in the traditional rite. As it turns out, only one of them was conditionally ordained. The other one was not. And later on, we, knowing, knowing that Monsignor Lefebvre intended to ordain both of them conditionally, we asked Monsignor how, how things went, and he informed us that the one priest was willing to be conditionally ordained, even more than willing, he, he wanted to do so, but the other was not willing to be conditionally ordained because he did not have any doubts about the validity of his Novus Ordo ordination. And so we mentioned to Archbishop Lefebvre that it seemed uh, rather precarious to allow the, the individual Novus Ordo priest to decide whether he felt that there was a problem or not. 
but we would go by the, this, the right itself, how we assessed the, the value or the validity of the right itself. But Monsieur Lefebvre's only answer at the time, and I realized perhaps this is all, the only answer he could give us at the time. I, I can't tell you what he was thinking, but he just indicated, well, this man was not willing to be ordained conditionally. <clears throat> I don't even know if he continued working with the society. Perhaps Monsieur Lefebvre <clears throat> quietly behind the scenes simply had him leave the employ, as it were, <laughs> or the, the fold of the side, and go off on his own. <clears throat> because later on I knew that this, the, the man who had not been conditionally ordained was not functioning under the name of the Society of St. Pius X. The problem now, though, is that it is becoming basically routine, I understand, to have Novus Ordo clergymen come into the Pius X churches, go to the altar, as I say, perform Mass, because I, I, I believe there is a serious question about the validity of their ordinations. Even hear confessions for the faithful. <clears throat> this is not right. This is, this is a fraud, in my mind, anyway, perpetrated on the traditional Catholic people who are in the traditional Catholic chapel <clears throat> there because they, they know, they have the confidence they can have valid sacraments there. And they do not have that confidence going to the Novus Ordo. Um, <clears throat> so to bring those Novus Ordo clergymen in to have them administering sacraments under the, the, the guise of tradition uh, in their churches, I think is a very serious uh, injustice, to say the least, to these people. And um, <clears throat> I, I didn't see Monsieur Lefebvre doing that. I, I see things, lots of thing happen, ha things happening under uh, the current uh, leadership in the Society of St. Pius X that I don't think Archbishop Lefebvre would ever have countenanced by, myself. <clears throat> um, so anyway, um, the, the, the writer has it, has it correct. I mean, this is... Uh, <clears throat> I, I think it's like the beginning of the end for the Society of St. Pius X. Mm -hmm. And yes, it is true. It seems to me that Archbishop, that Bishop Fillet is kowtowing to the Vatican. Yes, this... But I, I think uh, Father Schmidtberger actually explained why this is happening. At one point, Father Schmidtberger actually went on record, and it's in black and white, where he says, look, as long as we had a John Paul II or something like that, who's, or a Benedict who was kind of stickler for the rules uh, in some ways, well, we couldn't get anywhere with them because we're not Novus Ordo, we're not going to accept uh, Vatican II. He says, they, they know that, and so there's no room for us. But Francis is so... Um, what shall I say? Antinomian. That's not what they say, antinomian. But he, he's so completely, um, what's a good word that's more charitable than what I think right now? <laughs> that he's so goofy that this is our chance. This is our chance now because anything goes with him, basically. Maybe not tradition. Maybe that's not his cup of tea and he's always attacking it. But his whole approach is oh, well, you know, let's all. You know, whether you're Buddhist or whether you're Zoroastrian or whether you're Martian or whether you're, you know, from another galaxy entirely, you know. Um, anything goes with Francis in one way or another. So uh, this is our big chance to get approval from the Vatican. And maybe, maybe Bishop Fillet is thinking, well, that's true. We've got to act now. 
Well, we have a Francis to get approval because who knows what the next Novus Ordo Pontiff will be like and if we'll be able to get to first base with him. I don't know. It it doesn't make any sense. The more, more, um, well, what should I say? The, The more modernist Francis manifests himself, the more outrageous things he does and says against the faith, the more Bishop Fillet seems to be kowtowing to him. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can only think, if, if it were up, entirely up to Bishop Fillet, I think the Society of St. Pius X would be t- totally destroyed. I think the only thing has prevented the, the Society of St. Pius X from being totally destroyed is Francis is not going along with the charade. For some reason, he's drawing the line there. I mean, he's going with all this pagan, occult stuff everywhere he goes, uh, hobnobbing. I mean, while Filet is kowtowing to uh, Francis, Francis is kowtowing to the socialists, the Marxists, the communists, and uh, and the Zoroastrians, and and all the rest of them. And it's it's so bizarre. It doesn't make any sense. But all I can say is, thank goodness that the modernists under Francis are still resisting um, uh, Bishop Bernard Fillet's overtures, his proposals of marriage to them. They're resisting him. <laughs> uh, and it seems like it should be the other way around. <laughs> but uh, if it weren't for that, if they would simply uh, embrace him and then kind of hem him in and, and uh, say, okay, we have the power now. We're, we're sending in our Novus Ordo troops to break you down and to Novus Ordoize you, which is exactly what they're doing right now, or trying to do under the circumstances. Then I think the Society of St. Pius X would simply collapse on itself. Mm-hmm. Father, could you very briefly comment upon the, the recent happenings at the Society of St. Pius X Chapel right across the river here in, in Cincinnati? Um, how, if I can get the, the order of events correct here, the, the local Novus Ordo bishop recently paid a visit to their chapel to, to view the school, to get a tour there. I'm not sure if he was invited or requested this. But I he, heard that Father Boucher there said that he's our bishop. Right. He's, our bishop. He said that he's our bishop. I, I read that the... Uh, the school children performed hymns and, and sang mm-hmm. for the for the uh, the Novus Ordo bishop when he went there. And this particular Novus Ordo bishop, he uh, has has quite the the rap sheet of of dis- distancing himself from the pro life movement, telling his his mm-hmm. priests that they're not allowed to be involved with the Northern Kentucky Right to Life Association because their their views don't don't coincide. And uh, mm-hmm. he he seemingly been been supportive of the homosexual community in, in his in his diocese and and here you have the society of st pius 10th priest saying that this is this is our bishop and mm-hmm. apparently I, I i read father that uh that some individuals who who sent their children to this to the the school there the academy there they only found out about this hours before it happens but in a, in a, a sort of protest some of them held their 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 children home from school that day mm-hmm. as an act of protest to this but how father how how uh, logically inconsistent is this when you have the, these traditional Catholics who wish to remain true to traditionalism, and, and so they purposely seek out this society mm-hmm. to avoid the modernist disaster, and, and they, they they think that they found this safe this safe haven, and all of a sudden here you have their priest 
in literally inviting in these these modernists, the, the no, exact the, the, thing. The principle of modernism in the, in the diocese there. The modernist head, yeah. <laughs> right, is coming right there, welcomed there, as though everything is just... This is our bishop. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it is it is completely inconsistent. And, you know, as far as the people keeping their children home, well, uh, good. I, I mean, I'm glad they did. That, that was the right thing to do. But they should keep them home permanently, in the sense that they should not have anything to do with this. Why, why keep them home for the day? But then send them to school the next day. Um, uh, and why, why, why even attend the church there? If, if this is where they're going religiously, if this is their religion, and they recognize this man as the bishop of their religion, um, basically the representative of Christ there in that diocese, and the, the, representative, the, the actual uh, representative of the Roman Catholic Church there, um, if, if, if the leadership of uh, the Society of St. Pius X there in, uh, in Walton, Kentucky, really says this is our bishop, is that true or is it not true? Well, if he is their bishop, then let them do what he commands them to do. <clears throat> if he's saying this is our bishop, but we're not going to do what he tells us to do, if he tells us to do something we don't want to do. Well, what kind of nonsense is that? in terms of Catholicism. And what kind of lesson does that teach as far as the concept of Catholicism uh, with regard to who a bishop is, your relationship to him, and so on. I mean, if, if the man is there commanding them things that they say we cannot do in conscience because they are even contrary to the faith, well, then, you know, the Catholic Church would have something to say about who he is and what, what is his status there. But if, if he's going to be their bishop, and they recognize that he has canonical authority over them, not only from Francis, but from Christ, <clears throat> then on what basis can they say, well, we will obey you in everything that we like. And when you command us to do something that we don't like, we, we simply ignore you. This is not the Catholic concept of obedience. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's something pathologically wrong with this. I'm sorry. <clears throat> and I think it comes from some very false principles. Um, I know it does. And I'm very concerned about them all. I'm, I'm concerned about the priests. I'm concerned about the lay people who are involved in this because I think they're being led down the primrose path. And back into the jaws of the modernists again. Father, at, at the same the same chapel uh, going forward, it's apparently going to be standard practice now, where they have local Novus Ordo clergy come to witness their the, the marriages, the wedding ceremonies performed at this chapel. And, and I know one uh, one individual made the made the comment that uh, this this seems to be similar to to something like like Sanborn and. Uh, and that group did where they're kind of floating trial balloons and just seeing how the how the, the lady reacts to this, slowly bringing them in to, to witness the marriage, bringing in these Nova Sordo clergy to, to tour the school and, and just kind of slowly trying to, 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 to float out these trial balloons and see how the how the laity takes it. Well, Father Sandborn might also might have floated trial balloons, but not bringing Nova Sordo clergy yeah. <laughs> up and not do that. Mm -hmm. But the idea of floating trial balloons, yeah, to see what the people are willing to accept, mm -hmm. and also to bring them along little by little down that primrose path, as I mentioned. 
But Francis uh, uh, graciously conceded to them the power of validly absolving from sin, uh, even though Francis has basically redefined sin. <laughs> Francis has said that they can, because of the year of mercy, uh, he gave it to them, but then he extended it. So now they're, they're, they're forgiving sins now with Francis's okay. Okay. If Francis were to withdraw that okay, I don't know what the people would say. They might say, well, it didn't matter anyway, so we'll just carry on. But who knows? And um, also, one of the Francis concessions was that he will allow them to have marriages in their churches. As long as those marriages are presided over by one of his own Novus Ordo clergymen from the local diocese, or as long as one of the local Novus Ordo clergymen is present to at least attend the ceremony and witness it for the diocese. Or, barring that, even that the local bishop would somehow delegate the authority to the Society of St. Pius X priest to witness the marriage for the diocese, right? But all of this is sending the message that you can't really legitimately or even validly perform a wedding without doing it our way, with our approval. And insofar as they are conceding that point, they're conceding everything. They're basically saying that we're not doing, nothing we do is legitimate then, unless it has their approval. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> then why are we, why are we here? You know? Yeah. It's a, it's a very dangerous position, and as I say, there's a pathology. From the standpoint of true Catholic principle, there's a pathology at work here that would lead them back into, I would say, a cooperation with the modernists in bringing souls into their orbit and uh, setting them up for spiritual execution. Right. But uh, I'll tell you what, you have a few more there, Tom, and maybe we can very quickly go through them, because I know sure. you mentioned to me that we have, as of today, 100 outstanding email questions. 100. So 100 emails. Yeah. So who knows, there might actually be two or three questions per email, too. There usually are, at least. So uh, if we can just sure. quickly proceed, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe yeah. we can... I did want to get to this one, Paul. I thought this, this, was, this was very very interesting, different type of email here. This yeah. uh, viewer says, Dear Father, I recently had a very good friend pass away, and while I know that she has a family and friends that will pray for her, it made me think about all the poor souls that don't have anyone to pray for them. Either their family and friends have long since died or forgotten them, or they never had anyone to care for them in the first place. Maybe it's just me, but it seems like these souls are mostly left behind by Catholics, and besides the occasional prayer, nobody really thinks about them. So, I had the idea of perhaps starting a little prayer group kind of thing, consisting of people who will make the heroic act of charity, say a few daily prayers for the poor souls, and assist at Mass, if possible, on Mondays, and receive Holy Communion for them. If they're unable to assist Mass on Mondays, they could do so on Sundays. Of course, I'm not expecting anybody to spend hours of prayer on them just to say a De Profundis at the end of their rosary or an occasional prayer that they may rest in peace. But I'm only a very young girl and have no idea how one would go about arranging this or getting people interested in it, Father, or if it's even a good idea at all. If you have the time ever, would it be possible to send me a little advice? I submit myself to your judgment. 
Well, it's very good of her to ask me. And appreciate that. And there are a lot of other people and wiser people you could ask, but I, I think that's wonderful. I'm so pleased and impressed by what yeah. you're proposing here. Yeah. Uh, that is so Catholic, so I can say that's the highest compliment I can I can pay you. Um, and uh, actually, um, we have been thinking along the same lines. Actually, uh, for quite some time, it, it has been. Cons- uh, Concerned to me, as it is concerned to so many others, that the church has the, had this powerhouse of prayer. Her, the religious orders, especially the cloistered orders, yeah. uh, the cloistered uh, monasteries and convents, which were continual powerhouses of prayer, night and day, going up to God, begging His mercy, like the Carmel, where Saint Teresa of Lisieux, or uh, hundreds of years before Saint Teresa of Avila. And these have largely been devastated by Vatican II. <clears throat> and so, you know, just that's like pulling out the, the main support, like the, the legs of the church have just been pulled away by this, you know. Um, and so where do we turn for these prayers now? Well, we have to turn to somebody, and we have... Uh, this is not exactly what you're proposing here, I realize that. But we, we priests visit many, many people who are invalids, who are suffering with injury, who are suffering with illness. They might very well be undergoing you know, slow deaths. And some of them confined to, to bed, if not confined to quarters, uh, or confined to quarters, if not confined to bed, I should say. And um, they, they need something to show the purpose or to understand the purpose for their suffering. But we know what that purpose is. This is meant to be the offering of a victim's soul to God. They are called upon to perform a heroic sacrifice of patience in suffering and uniting that suffering with our Lord. I mean, our Lord performed many powerful miracles while he was on earth. He walked on water, he healed the lepers, he, he raised the dead to life, he fed thousands in the, in the wilderness with a couple loaves of bread. But the most important act that our Lord ever performed was not any of these great miracles. The most important act he performed was his patience on the, in his passion and his death. In his, you might say, in his helplessness, his his willed helplessness. We call it the passion because it's what he accepted of what was done to him. Uh, these miracles are what he did when he was active, when he was passive. His passion was the real power when he did what only God had the power to do. Open the gates of heaven. Redeem mankind from its sins. <clears throat> that was the greatest miracle of all. And so we have people who are suffering now, who are carrying the cross, and yet what word of consolation or comfort is there for them that could possibly compare with an understanding that I am uniting my life with Jesus Christ, crucified. <clears throat> and I, maybe I've gone through my life and I've been praying for this grace and praying for that grace. I've done this for Christ. I've done that for our Lord. And yet, the most significant thing that I have to accomplish in my whole life is right now, doing what our Lord did for me and doing it for others, <clears throat> patience, patience in suffering, right? 
why don't we marshal those forces? Why don't we organize them? I mean, for years and years and years now, literally, I mean, for at least 25 years now, <clears throat> I've had the thought of the, the 40 martyrs of Sebaste. These are the martyrs, the soldiers who were stretched out on the ice to freeze to death throughout the night in Armenia, right? This is after Constantine gave the liberty to the church in, in 313 with the Edict of Milan. Uh, this was in, in the East when the church was still being persecuted. <clears throat> I, and I see in them a kind of an, an early example of those who are now confined to bed. They're not stretched out in the ice to freeze to death, but they are dying of cancer, or they're dying of some other ailment. And they kind of, well, it represent to me um, <clears throat> those who in the world today have something very significant to offer our Lord in their, in their debility, in their acceptance of sufferings. And so I even thought, well, why not, you know, have like the League of the Forty Martyrs and, um, you know, have priests actually talk to those who are in that stage of their lives and enroll them and uh, bring them the consolation uh, that comes from that. Have organizing them in prayer and offerings uh, of their sufferings, right, for the souls. And, um, and also um, even sending them messages, you know, somehow through some media where they, they have a, a, a constant message of encouragement coming to them. Um, <clears throat> those who will write to them and encourage them and thank them, you know. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, there's so much you can do for them, to organize them, to form them into a kind of soldierly uh, battalion of, of, uh, uh, of patient, you know, sure. those who are carrying the Christ across after our Lord, uh, like marching after their captain with the cross. So I, th I think it's not exactly everything that she's expressed here, but I think we're thinking along similar lines here. She's thinking about the souls of the faithful departed. <clears throat> that could well be one of their uh, one of their purposes, mm -hmm. definitely to uh, to give relief to the souls in purgatory, because yeah. um, they have something very significant to offer yeah. when the church is desperately in need of this mm -hmm. offering. Yeah. So, in any case, um, I would recommend that she do this. I, I don't know where she is or who she is. But I would recommend that she might she might want to talk to her local traditional priest and see uh, where this could go. If he's supportive of this, great. I'd like to hear from him. We should talk about this. Uh, I'd like to hear from her myself. You know. Um, so if she, if she wants, you know, if we, you want to send her my email address, that'd be fine. But I, I need to know when she responds because I honestly do not check yeah. my email. I, I, I just can't. Yeah. I'm sorry. We, we can do that. Um, but um, you, you can get, get us can. in contact yes. somehow. Yeah. Uh, well. So maybe we can get together and uh, try to make something happen, something yeah. good happen here. Arch uh, Bishop Mendez who ordained Father Greenwell and Father Bomberger, who consecrated Bishop Kelly. And Natalie White, his secretary of many years, together formed, uh, way back when, before Vatican II, 
the uh, aid to the captive church for the the Catholic souls behind the Iron Curtain who are being held prisoner by the communists. Mm-hmm. Now, I see this as a successor to that. If we could have the aid to the captive church suffering in purgatory, mm-hmm. which is what her idea is. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'd like to see this happen. Yeah, I'd say we'll, we'll be in touch. I think that's great. Uh, okay, real quickly here, Father, this... Uh, this viewer says that uh, there is a Society of St. Pius V chapel around two hours away from them. And so they'd like for you to explain their Sunday obligation. In particular, how, how often should I attend Mass there? What do I do at home when I cannot get there? Should I confess those times I could not attend? Should I follow the traditional missal at home? Should I pray the rosary at home? Since I've only known the Vatican II Church, should I make a general confession to a Society St. Pius V priest? If so, can I just call and make an appointment? Uh, the answer to that question is yes, you can call and make an appointment. And yes, it would be a good idea to do so. Mm-hmm. If you've only been in the Novus Ordo, yes, I'd recommend heartily that you do so. Mm-hmm. And in calling, you'll get some guidance on how to do that yes, also. Definitely. As far as the um, praying, yes, pray the prayers of the Missal, pray the prayers of the Mass at home. Mm-hmm. Pray the rosary. There are litanies. There are other devotions that you can pray. Mm-hmm. Abstain from servile work as you would on a holy day on a Sunday. And uh, so practice the Sunday. Keep Sunday holy as well as you can, including the holy days, too. How often should you attend? That depends on a number of things. You live about two hours away. away and um, But... You know, just how rigorous is that journey for you? Two hours for some people would be a very, very difficult journey because of age and otherwise health, mm-hmm. a lack of health and so on. Because of roads, because of the journey, because of the route, because of any number of things. And, um, and with family, it depends on family too, transporting the family there. Um, now, theologians, Catholic theologians, have said that there is an obligation by church law to attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days. But generally speaking, they've said that if you have to travel more than an hour each way to Mass, that you're not obliged under painted mortal sin to do that by church law. Um, however, it is not only by church law that we're obliged to attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days. It is also by a, that we're also bound by the natural law of God and even by the divine positive law that we have to do what is necessary to save our souls. So if, if there's an obligation by church law that would not, let's say, bind us because of the circumstances, we might still well be obligated by the sheer necessity of saving our souls. So if, if you're someone um, who, who needs to attend Mass to remain in the state of grace, you have to attend Mass as often as you, as you need to, absolutely. In other words, to, to be in the state of grace. You need to give yourself access to the sacraments, to uh, the Holy Eucharist, uh, penance, as often as you need to to live a, a religious, spiritual life and stay in the grace of God. And all the more so if you have a family, if you have children. They need to see the the life of the church. They need to see the Mass. They need to see the sacraments. They need to be able to receive them. 
These are their formative years. And so you, you have to make extra efforts for them to give them as much exposure to the Mass and the sacraments as you can reasonably do so. When you cannot do it, yes, by all means, sanctify the day as well as you can at home by prayers and other things. And um, observing the other you know, precepts of the Church or prescriptions of the Church for holy days. Mm-hmm. But uh, trying to make it to Mass as often as you can. If you can't make the drive yourself, try to find others who will go with you and uh, hopefully become traditional Catholics, practicing traditional Catholic with you. Um, But I would definitely recommend this, in any case, that this this person, this dear soul, contact the priest at the traditional chapel, right? Contact them, explain the predicament, and ask the the priest in that mission, uh, what should I do? Father, I'm going to be coming myself or with my family, uh, this Sunday, would you, could you spare me 15 minutes or 20 minutes of your time? I need to know what my obligation is to be there, sure. uh, living two hours away, as mm-hmm. I do. Okay. Um, so that's a contact that is indispensable, I think. Right. Okay, Father, you asked me no question. Uh, are yeah. the... Uh, the those, you... those are my strong... <laughs> strong the no sort of clergy that are, are currently being ordained, are they still taking the oath against modernism when they become priests? No. Okay. <laughs> then another... They're not required to. Whether they're doing it or not behind closed doors, I don't know. Okay. The fact is, no, that's been suppressed. Okay. Uh, and... That was suppressed by Paul VI. Mm-hmm. The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it has been suppressed. No, they're not taking it. <laughs> Got it. Uh, why did we change from saying Holy Ghost to Holy Spirit? And what do you think of that? We, did, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I've mentioned this before. I remember when I was in second grade when we were told this by the nun. Uh, Sister, I, I forget her name. Sister Maria, I think, mm-hmm. something. <laughs> announced to our class of second graders that we're no longer going to say Holy Ghost because ghosts scare people. <laughs> and of course, it had never occurred to any of us, I don't think, that to be scared of the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> Until she said that. She said, now we're going to say Holy Spirit, as if that's not scary enough. <laughs> you know, any less it's scarier than Holy Ghost. But I remember thinking at the time, this is really nonsense. You know, know, what's happened to Sister So-and-so? You know? <laughs> um, and of course, they went from... They dropped the Holy Ghost to for Holy Spirit, then they dropped the Holy, now it's a Spirit. Spirit this, Spirit that. <clears throat> uh, they just dropped the Holy altogether, is what they did. And throughout the entire Novus Ordo, that's exactly what they did. Throughout the entire Novus Ordo, they've dropped the Holy part. <clears throat> so it was kind of a symbolic change. And um, is there anything wrong with the, the, the expression Holy Spirit? No. There are old Catholic books that are translated generally from the French spiritual writers. Mm-hmm. They're translating the Saint Esprit, the Holy Spirit. They're translating it that way. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the modernists who, who've introduced the problem. Yeah. That they're ruling out the expression Holy Ghost because they want to take this in a certain way. And that's exactly what they've done. So it's almost a matter of principle now 
that while we're not telling people who say Holy Spirit that that's wrong or somehow anti-Catholic, we continue to say Holy Ghost to make the point that the modernists have incorporated this and used this as one of their changes for nefarious purposes, and we will not mm-hmm. follow their lead. I, I believe Father St. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica that he said uh, the phrase Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit mean the same thing. They, they have the they, same they, thing. They can use interchangeably. Der Heilige Geist in, uh, in German. Mm-hmm. It's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. You know, as far as uh, as far as fear of uh, of ghosts, though, it seems that seems that modernist fear of the Holy Ghost is uh, well founded. Perhaps they uh, they should be afraid. <laughs> well, if Scrooge feared Marley's ghost, I, I suppose they have reason to fear. Uh, are you saying that they have reason to fear the Holy Ghost, Tom? I get your point. Yeah, <laughs> I would I would say yes. They have reason to fear the Holy Ghost. <laughs> okay, uh, Father. It looks like we have about five minutes left right. to stretch all the way to the end. And this this is the last email on my stack. So how about that? Perfect, right. perfect timing. Uh, this is in regards to state of Reconciliation. So it should be very, very quick. <laughs> uh, can you clarify, Father, whether a non-dogmatic but personal Sede Vicantis can be part of the Society of St. Pius V? Yes. Okay. All right, there we go. I, I clarified. <laughs> I, I, that was clear. Yes, but do you want to be clarified? I'm just saying, yes, I can. And, and four minutes. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, I think I'd be clear in that. A non-dogmatic... Sede Vicantis is personally convinced that Francis cannot logically be the vicar of Christ on earth, be the Pope. It can, can be associated with the Society of St. Pius V, definitely. I would say rather a dogmatic Sede Vicantis, who my, by that I mean someone who says, I'm convinced Francis is not the Pope, and therefore that is a dogma of faith. I would say that person could not be associated with this uh, St. Pius V if he really thinks of himself as the Pope with the power to define Catholic dogma. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, but I, I, yes, that's, that's actually my whole, my whole point about the Society of St. Pius V, is that no matter how strong the case may be for the non papacy of Francis, that it is uh, logical and theological, but we do not arrogate to ourselves the power of the supreme pontiff ourselves. We do not crown ourselves with the tiara as though we are the popes and as though we have the power to dogmatically define anything. We can only go with what the church has taught us. We, We will hold that dearly, more dearly than life itself. So if our if our writer is asking us if someone who does not declare himself the pope and dogmatically defines that Francis is not the, is not the pope, can he be associated with the Society of Saint Pius V? I would say, well, yeah, most definitely. <laughs> I would say anybody who crowns himself the pope and says I'm dogmatically defining that he is right. the pope, I would say we, we would have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you, Father. I think we got through around ten or so. Emails tonight. So well, I, I give you credit for that, Tom. Your perseverance. <laughs> I think we have about 90, 90 something left okay. in there. So, well, we sometime we'll just start. We'll sit down and we'll just go through the wall. Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. And a marathon, and then um, 
Road City Blues, well, who's awake at <laughs> You or me or any of our listeners. Thanks for being here tonight. God bless your time. Take care. Thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.